All right. Well, tonight we start a new book. So uh, if you will, turn with me in your Bibles to the book of James. Also subtitled, How to Win Friends and Influence People. Uh, no, uh, James was not like that. He told you how it was straight and uh, didn't care if you liked it or not. We need more preachers like that today. But um, the James who wrote the epistle that bears his name is regarded by most evangelical scholars to be James, the uh, half-brother of the Lord Jesus Christ, and not one of the other three James mentioned in the Gospels. Uh, Jesus' half-brother James was not, listen, was not one of his disciples during his earthly ministry. In fact, uh, during his earthly ministry, Jesus' half-brothers, James, Josie, Simon, Judas, they're all listed in Matthew 13, verses 55 and 6. But I think pretty much the whole family thought he was mentally unstable for going around claiming to be the Messiah. Uh, he's lost it. Uh, they came to get him at one point, okay, because they just felt like he, he had lost it, all right? So what brought James to saving faith? Well, we read in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 7, that Jesus appeared to James after he rose from the dead. And uh, this convinced James, no doubt, that, well, we know it did because he went on to be a believer, but we this convinced him that Jesus was truly the Messiah and Savior of the world. Well, no doubt James shared his newfound faith with his brothers and sisters. And we know that at least one of them got saved, Judas. Probably the whole, all of his half-siblings got saved, but we can't verify that for sure. But we know Judas, also known as Jude, got saved. He wrote the epistle of Jude. And uh, James went on to become the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem. Uh, you remember, he was the one that made the, the deciding speech at the Jerusalem Council in Acts 15. And uh, Paul called James uh, one of the pillars of the church in Galatians 2, verse 9. You know, we learn from uh, early church history that James was such a man of prayer that his knees had large, thick calluses on them, making them look like the knees of a camel, which uh, earned him the nickname Camel Knees. Would to God we would all have that nickname. We also learn that James was so hated by the Pharisees in Jerusalem for his unwavering testimony of the Lord Jesus that they eventually threw him off the pinnacle of the temple to kill him. However, however when they discovered the fall didn't finish him, they ran over there and beat him to death with clubs. The year was A.D. 62. Tradition tells us that he died praying for and forgiving his attackers following the example of his Lord, who from the cross prayed for and forgave those who crucified him. Now, the date of the epistle of James is uncertain. One thing we can be certain of, it was written sometime before AD 62. Uh, it's the only thing we know for sure. Um, to whom did James address his epistle? And what was his purpose in writing to them? Well, we learn to whom James addressed his epistle from the very first verse of chapter 1, he says, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. The word scattered means in the dispersion, a term that was usually used to identify Jews who were living outside the land of Israel. But what's kind of interesting about that word is that it carries with it the idea of scattering seed. Scattering seed is when a farmer sows his fields for harvest. Of course, you remember from our study in the book of Acts that the Jewish believers were scattered throughout the Roman Empire in the first wave of persecution as recorded in Acts chapter 8, verses 1 and 4. God used this persecution to sow the seeds of the gospel in many places all throughout the known world, and the result was a great harvest of souls for the kingdom. However, guys, the cost was great, and uh, many of these Jewish disciples were persecuted greatly for their faith, usually and most vehemently by their fellow countrymen. This led to great discouragement, which was one of the reasons James wrote to them, to encourage them not to give up. This is such a relevant book for us today, to not give up, but to keep going forward in their faith and in their ministries, keeping their eyes on Jesus, as we all must do. Unfortunately, uh, many of these Jewish disciples it seems had given up and had gone back to the world and its 
riches, quote unquote, it's what the Bible calls the deceitfulness of riches. The world can never really give us anything of any value. It can dangle cheap baubles in front of us that make us think the world is something we want. And the devil does deceive a lot. As Jesus said, sometimes the seed falls on the um, thorny soil, is it, where the cares of this life, the deceitfulness of riches choke it out and never comes to fruit. Well, James was writing to some, many actually, who had kind of gone back to the world and its riches, which is another theme that he addresses in chapters 4 and 5 of his letter. Now, author Warren Worsby contends that the main theme of James' epistle is the issue of spiritual immaturity. He says, and I quote, These Christians simply were not growing up. This gives us a hint as to the basic theme of this letter, the marks of maturity in the Christian life. James used the word perfect several times, a word that means mature or complete. By a perfect man, which he quotes from chapter 3, verse 2, James did not, not mean a sinless man, but rather one who is mature, balanced, or in other words, grown up. Spiritual maturity is one of the greatest needs in the church today. Too many churches are playpens for babies instead of workshops for adults. The members are not mature enough to eat the solid spiritual food that they need, so they have to be fed on milk. And then he quotes Hebrews 5, 11 to 14. Just look at the problems James dealt with, and you can see that each of them is characteristic of little children. Impatience and difficulties, chapter 1. Talking but not living the truth, chapter 2. No control of the tongue, he addresses that in chapter 3. Fighting and coveting in the church, well, he talks about that in chapter 4. And then collecting material toys, quote-unquote, chapter 5. <laughs> it kind of sounds like many churches and Christians today. There's nothing new under the sun, guys, okay? Nothing new under the sun. Now, before we jump in, let me mention one more thing. Martin Luther didn't believe the book of James was inspired by God and therefore shouldn't have been included in the New Testament canon of Scripture. You see, in Luther's mind, when James said that salvation was not by faith alone, but by faith plus works, chapter 2, verses 14 to 26, in Luther's mind, it proved that James was not writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But you have to understand, Luther and the Reformers were fighting a fierce battle against the Roman Catholic Church over this very issue, how a person is saved. The Roman Catholic Church taught that it was by faith plus works, in other words, going to Mass, lighting candles, doing penance, keeping the sacraments, and so on. Whereas the Reformers believed and taught that the Bible was crystal clear on the subject, that salvation was by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But did James actually teach that salvation was a combination of faith coupled with works? No. And we'll see that clearly in chapter 2 when we get there. James didn't teach faith plus works for salvation. Listen, he taught a faith that works as evidence of salvation. Or, as Spurgeon put it, we are convinced that a man is saved by faith alone. But we are also just as convinced that the kind of faith that saves a man is never really alone. So let's jump in. James chapter 1, verse 1. James, a bondservant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. Now, I will just throw this out to you so that you know this for every other epistle you read in the New Testament. The term bondservant, we're not even sure what that is. Okay, that's doesn't appear anywhere in the New Testament. Whenever you see the word bondservant, it's always the Greek word doulos, which means slave. Slave, okay? In other words, we read James, a slave of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, a bond slave is something different. That actually comes out of the Old Testament. We just finished Exodus. We talked about this. How that in those days, if you couldn't pay off a debt, you could sell yourself into a voluntary slavery to work it off. But if at the end of that time, your master had been so good to you, was such a kind man, gave you and your family a nice place to live, good food to eat, you could go to him and say, look, you, you're such a great master, I don't want to leave your service. Therefore, I want to become your bond slave. In other words, 
a willing, voluntary slave for the rest of my life. And as the master would hear that, he would agree, no doubt, because uh, here was a man giving him great honor, saying, look, you're a fantastic master, and I want to be in your service the rest of my life. And so as we talked about, they would, uh, he would take the uh, slave to the doorpost of the house, take an awl, drive it through his earlobe into the doorpost, symbolically pinning him to the house, and then put a golden earring in his ear, and that would be a testimony to everybody who saw this slave that his master was such a phenomenal man that this was a man who was willing to put himself into voluntary slavery to this man the rest of his life. Now, the apostles loved that so much, every one of them opened up their epistles with a bond slave of Christ, the bond servant of Christ, and so on. They all saw themselves voluntary slaves for life to a master who was the greatest master in the whole universe. As we have said many times, the goal of life isn't to find freedom. It's to find the right master. So James, a bond slave or a slave of Christ, to the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad. Now, James is writing to Jewish Christians, but they're still Christians, guys, okay? Which means this letter applies to all Christians, whether they be Jew or Gentile. Uh, some people say, well, no, he was writing to Jews, uh, therefore, this letter is only for the Jews. That's ridiculous. Uh, these Jews that were scattered were scattered in the first wave of persecution that we talked about in Acts 1. They were scattered because they were believers in Christ. They were Jewish believers. So whatever James says to them, yes, there's definitely a Jewish flavor to it. But it has a universal application. So verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Now, guys, right up front, James presents the difference between spiritual and carnal believers. It all comes down to how they see trials and how they receive trials. But I'll tell you, at the core of that, at the core of that is how each sees this life. Carnal Christians look at life from Earth's perspective and their view of Christianity as a vehicle for God to bless them. Uh, Paul talks about this in uh, 1 Timothy 6. There are those that think that godliness is a, is a way to get rich. From these kind of people, withdraw yourself. That's a toxic view. It's heretical. Godliness with contentment is great gain. All right? But there are those carnal Christians who are looking at life from earth's perspective and uh, viewing their Christianity as a vehicle for God to bless them. For these people, God exists to make them happy and to bless them with all kinds of material treasures as they're all about laying up for themselves treasures on the earth. In contrast, mature, spirit-filled Christians see life from an eternal perspective and view their Christian life as a way to lay up for themselves treasures in heaven by denying themselves, taking up their cross, and living for the glory of God while on this earth. The first group tends to see trials as a satanic plot to destroy their earthly happiness and therefore believes that the devil needs to be rebuked when he attacks with trials so that they can once again enjoy God's blessings in this life. Whereas the second group sees trials as being necessary for growth and spiritual development, a part of God's plan to better equip all of us for service to our Lord. Now, James, who I just, I just said earlier, wants to replace carnality with maturity in the lives of his readers, is trying to get them to see that their difficult circumstances are really a positive thing, are really a positive thing, a blessing from God to help them grow in their faith and to better prepare them for the rigors of ministry, which is what this life is all about in serving the Lord. It's not going to be easy. Uh, we know that. And God has chosen to put us through various trials because it has a way of um, strengthening us, teaching us, keeping us on our knees, drawing us close to Him every day. This is essential if we're going to be victorious and effective in our service for him. Of course, carnal Christians don't see things that way. They have a whole different way of looking at things. In their mind, God exists to bless me. All right? In fact, that's what they were promised when they received Christ by many of these word of faith, uh, name it, claim it, preachers. Come to Jesus, right? And he's going to bless you. You know, He's going to prosper your business. He's going to do this and that and give you the nicest house in the community and so on. So they come to Christ looking for God to bless them with material things, not realizing that 
He has given us all blessings in the heavenly realm, which is the most important, all spiritual blessings, and um, wants us to see life from eternity's perspective because it's, it really isn't about uh, how comfortable we are. It's how holy we are, uh, how equipped we are to serve him. So verse 2, once again, my brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. That's very difficult for a carnal Christian to get their mind around. Okay, uh, First of all, when it, he says, count it all joy when you fall into various trials. doesn't mean you trip over your feet and fall into something nasty. Okay, The, the Greek word simply means when you come across or you encounter various trials. Now, you live the Christian life, you walk with Jesus, you're going to be attacked by the devil. You're going to come across various trials. Verse 3, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. That's a very key concept, not just in James' writing, but all throughout the New Testament. The word patience, there's the Greek word hupamone. Sounds kind of Italian, doesn't it? It's a word that comes from two Greek words, hupa, which means under, and uh, meno, which means to stay, abide, or to remain. And so it's a word that basically means to remain under. But remain under what? Remain under the pressure. Remain under the burdens associated with ministry, associated with the attacks of the devil. When pressures come, when trials come, we're not to run, we're to hang in there. That's the idea too, to hang in there under pressure. Okay? It pictures somebody under a heavy load and choosing to stay there instead of trying to escape. One ancient Greek philosopher called Hupomone, listen, the queen of virtues. Another described it as, and I'm quoting, the frame of mind which endures. And so the word basically means endurance or perseverance. What is James saying? He is saying that trials are beneficial in that they build endurance in us to finish the race. What's the race? Paul said in Acts 20, it was the ministry God has called us to. You know, long-distance runners have to train by subjecting themselves to the pain of running every day, really, as to build, so as to build up their endurance that they want to finish their race and receive the prize. And James is saying that the same is true in our race for Jesus. Trials subject us to some pain, but it's designed by our trainer. Who's our trainer? The Holy Spirit. To build our endurance so that we finish the race he has set before us. Look, trials are going to do one of two things in people's lives. They're going to burn up the, uh, what is it, what did Paul say in 1 Corinthians 3? Um, wood, hay, and stubble. But it will temper the real. So there's a lot of people that come to church. They're not all genuine believers. We know that. And sometimes God will allow trials to purify the church because those who are not real disciples of Christ, they're going to bail when trials come. They didn't sign up for this. Okay, I can just hear them. I didn't sign up for this. Uh, I was promised goodies. I was promised material things, and I didn't, didn't sign up for this persecution. So they leave. But those who are genuine hang in there because God gives us the grace to hang in there. And while we're hanging in there and going through these trials, it keeps us on our knees. It causes us to... Um, you know, it has a way of purifying our hearts and, and, and lives and that we come to a place where we say, you know, Lord, it really is, it really is a, a, an easy choice for me. It's either go back to the world or to hang in there and become all that you want me to be, which is what these trials are doing, all right? So it, it weeds out the uncommitted, the, the phonies, and it has a way of strengthening or tempering uh, the faith of the genuine. In fact, not to mix metaphors, but I will for a second, when James talks about the testing of our faith, the word testing there is a Greek word that, it, that relates to, uh, to refining metals, okay? The refiner's fire, testing, okay? And he's likening the fires of trials, he's likening it to the uh, fire that uh, a refiner uses to purify, or the goldsmith uses to purify, we'll say, gold, all right? In fact, Peter uh, basically said the same thing. Turn to 1 Peter chapter 1. Listen to what Peter says. He kind of expands on James' thought. James talks about the testing of our faith. Peter actually gives us a little more into what, uh, the, no doubt, the other apostles believed and kind of how they saw this. 
But uh, 1 Peter 1, verse 6, he said, In this you greatly rejoice, in your knowledge of Jesus Christ, that he's coming soon. Though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by, grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revela revelation of Jesus Christ. And we've all talked about this, or we've talked about this numerous times in the past. But when we get saved, our faith is like a, like a lump of, of, we'll say, raw gold ore. All right? Uh, the value is there, but there's a lot of imperfections or impurities. And what the goldsmith does is he takes a, a lump of uh, gold ore, puts it in a pot, and heats it. As the gold melts, the impurities start to be released and float to the top. He scrapes them off. He keeps heating that gold ore. The impurities keep being released. He keeps scraping that off. He does this over and over again until he can look into that pot of gold and see his reflection. Then he's ready to shape it into whatever he wants to shape it into. It's kind of the same way, and I believe Peter's alluding to that very thing in what he says, that, you know, our faith, when we first get saved, is kind of raw. I mean, it's precious to God, but it's kind of raw, and it's got some impurities, okay? Trials have a way of um, releasing the impurities uh, by getting us to kind of uh, see what's in our own hearts, examine our own hearts. And we, as we see these things come to the surface, well, we confess them, we repent of them, and God removes them. And this goes on and on. It really takes a lifetime in some ways. But um, as God keeps refining our faith through the fires of trials, he keeps seeing his reflection in our lives more and more clearly. And the more we submit to the process, and the more we reflect the image of our Creator, the more he can use us for his glory. That is the goal of the Christian life, to be used by God for his glory. It's not to use God for my pleasure. It's to be used by God for his glory. Again, verse 2, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing... The testing of your faith produces patience. Verse 4, But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. The word perfect there is a Greek word that means mature. Mature. And guys, this is one of the main reasons many Christians never really grow up. They never exercise enough patience. By that I mean they don't hang in there long enough. Hupomone. They don't hang in there long enough to give God time to work in their trials so as to build their faith. Author William McDonald put it this way, and I quote, he said, Sometimes when problems come, we become desperate and use frantic means to cut short the trial without consulting the Lord as to his purpose in the matter or in the trial. By doing this, we actually may be thwarting God's program in our lives. It is just possible that we may have to undergo a longer trial in the future before his particular purpose is realized in us. We should not short-circuit the development of endurance in our lives, but cooperating with God, we will become mature, well-rounded Christians, lacking in none of the graces of the Holy Spirit, end quote. So again, we have to have a certain mindset, don't we? When trials come, and we'll talk about what they could form they take in a moment, but when trials come, the first thing we should do is not pray to get out of it, but pray to find out from God why we're in it. What is he trying to accomplish? Look, our whole Christian life is a schooling, all right? Think of it as uh, taking college courses, you know, and uh, you don't do so well with a certain college course or you fail it. What do you got to do? You got to take it again, right? I don't know about you. But I don't want to take these courses over and over again. So when trials come our way, we need to seek God and say, okay, Lord, what purpose am I going through this for? What, what are you trying to teach me? I want to submit to it. Are you trying to show me things in my own heart that I'm not aware of, things that are hindering you using me fully? Lord, I need to know. And uh, it causes us to focus on God. Remember what Paul said in Romans 5, verses 3 and 4. He said, we can rejoice too when we run into problems and trials, for we know that they help us develop endurance. And endurance develops strength of character, and character strengthens our confident hope of salvation. Well, verse 5, James 1, verse 5, 
If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. Now let me just stop here and say this. Intelligence is the accumulation of information. Wisdom is the proper application of information. A person can have a lot of information in their brain, but still be a fool if they don't apply it properly in their life. I'll give an example. Many scientists are brilliant men and women. Uh, I'm amazed at what they know with regard to the cosmos and uh, the universe and stars and constellations and galaxies and, and what they know about our own uh, planet, you know, and the way of nature and ecosystems and animals and all of that stuff. I mean, they are brilliant men and women, many of them. But if that knowledge doesn't point them to God, then as God sees them, they are fools regardless of how smart they are. They're fools. In fact, turn to Romans chapter 1. Paul talks about that. It's interesting. We live in a culture that so worships knowledge and intellect that the smarter a person is, the more PhDs they have. Wow, they're up there and they're almost worshiped as like a godlike figure. But Paul said in Romans 1 verse 18, he said, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who suppress the truth, the truth of God, in unrighteousness or in their desire to live unrighteously. Because what may be known of God is manifest in them, for God has shown it to them. For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even as eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse. The people of this world are without excuse because God has, has revealed himself in the creation. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the um, firmament shows forth his handiwork, and so on. Uh, it's a universal testimony to the entire world of God's existence, the psalmist tells us. And God says, look, and I'll paraphrase, you can't have creation without a creator. Any more than you can have a building without a builder, an architect, and so on. If something exists, it had to have a, a source, all right? God is the ultimate source. And to say everything came from nothing all by itself, which is the evolutionary model, is the height of foolishness. And Paul says it here. He said, for verse 24, since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal power and Godhead, so that they are without excuse, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Professing to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the incorruptible God into an image made like corruptible man and birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. So man looks out into the, into the creation, and in an act of supreme folly, worships the creation as if everything came into being all by itself instead of worshiping the creator. And so you can be a very intelligent and still be uh, considered a fool in the eyes of God. Now listen, when it comes to wisdom in the Christian life, it's true it all starts with the knowledge of God's word. But that knowledge doesn't listen. Automatically equal wisdom, which is the proper application of God's word in a given situation. Therefore, we need to ask God through his Holy Spirit to give us grace and understanding to properly apply what we learn from his word into our lives. This is divine wisdom. Yes, it's based on the knowledge of God's word. But there are a lot of people who, well, I'll give you an example. There are a lot of liberals. I was reading one of my favorite commentators and he was saying, and he's a born again evangelical conservative. But he was saying how that at one point he was over in Germany visiting a bunch of German theologians. He said, I was amazed they could quote large passages of Scripture from memory. They know the word. They knew the word. Yet they were very liberal. They denied the virgin birth, the bodily resurrection, the divinity of Christ, that he was the only way to heaven. They had knowledge, but that knowledge didn't automatically make them wise. When we study the word of God, it's important that we study it. But it's more important that we, that we ask the Holy Spirit to give us the wisdom to apply it properly into our lives because we want to live lives that are wise, 
because God is giving us that wisdom. Look, how does a Christian become wise? Well, I believe it all starts, first of all, in our hearts with the fear of the Lord. You know, you're never going to be wise if you're walking in pride, okay? So if you want wisdom, if you really want to apply properly God's word into your life and into every situation you face in your life, listen to me. It all starts with the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. The Bible says the fear of the Lord is to hate evil. It's very important we understand that. You know, Solomon had a lot to say about this in the book of Proverbs. Turn to Proverbs chapter 1. In Proverbs chapter 1, verse 7, Solomon says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. Jump down to chapter 2, verse 1. He said, My son, if you receive my words and treasure my commands within you, so that you incline your ear to wisdom and apply your heart to understanding, yes, if you cry out for discernment and lift up your voice for understanding, if you seek her as silver and search for her, for her as for hidden treasure, then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From his mouth come knowledge and understanding. He stores up sound wisdom for the upright. He is a shield to those who walk uprightly. He guards the paths of justice and preserves the way of his saints. Then you will understand righteousness and justice, equity and every good path. When wisdom enters your heart and knowledge is pleasant to your soul, discretion will preserve you. Understanding will keep you to deliver you from the way of evil, from the man who speaks perverse things. Or in other words, from the man who speaks things contrary to God's truth. Well, there's none of those running around today, obviously. We live in a world of lies. And we have all these so-called experts with letters after their names telling us that God doesn't exist, that man is God. He answers to himself, in other words. Solomon is basically saying, you can read the whole book for yourself, but Solomon is basically saying in these first few chapters, he's talking to his son. He's admonishing him as a father should every son or daughter. He is saying, look, the only thing in life that matters is the fear of the Lord rooted in your knowledge of God and in the proper application of what he has said, which is wisdom. He said, if you give your life to that pursuit, knowing God by studying his word and seeking him for the wisdom to apply his word rightly into your life, you will have great treasure more than anything this world can offer because it will be eternal treasure in nature. One author said this, and I quote, he said, the Bible does not give specific answers to the innumerable problems that arise in life. It does not solve problems in so many words, but God's word does give us general principles. We must apply these principles to problems as they arise day by day. It's a good title for a radio show. <laughs> this is why we need wisdom. Spiritual wisdom is the practical applica application of our Lord's teaching to everyday situations, end quote. Now, guys, the wisdom that James is referring to is no doubt wisdom from God in knowing what to do or how to act uh, in the various trials we face in life. Many times we find ourselves going through a difficult trial. We'll say with your job, maybe, okay? Uh, I talked to a lady on the phone not long ago. She was going through a, a real difficult trial in her job. And she was saying, well, why do you think God is allowing this? I said, well, it could be one of two reasons. Uh, either to move you on or to toughen you up. Now, you need to seek him for the wisdom to know which, which is which. Okay? There are times, like God used the trials in Egypt to get his people's hearts ready to leave Egypt, I think that God is about to use some very severe trials in America to get our hearts to let go of this life. Too many Christians are holding on too tight to this world, to this life. And I think God, in his mercy and love, is going to bring some persecution, which is going to cause us to long more and more for heaven and not for the things of earth. And that will strengthen us, and that will equip us for the home stretch before the rapture as we will give ourselves over more and more to just <laughs> singleness of mind, okay? Focusing on the Lord and on the finish line and 
with the words in our heart, we want to hear him say, well done, good and faithful servants, when we see him. But, you know, there are many difficult trials that come into our lives. Is God using this to kind of move me on? Well, not in marriage. Don't, don't go there, okay? Uh, my marriage is so bad. Maybe God told me I should move on. No, 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 okay? See, this is the proper application we're talking about, okay? So a lot of people will, re- you know, think that way and then, or hear me say that and go, oh, okay, well, he's talking to me. I got a bad marriage, a lot of trials. He's moving me on. Now he's toughening you up. That's what he's got going on in your life, okay? But, but guys, this is what the, the word hupomone, uh, perseverance, endurance is all about. God wants us to be toughened up. He wants us to hang in there. We're so prone to bail, to run. Uh, I don't want to deal with this. And we want to escape. And God is saying, no, I can never grow you and use you the way I want you if you don't learn to hang in there. If at the first sign of trouble, you're out of here like Jacob, always running, and Jacob never gave God a chance to really show Jacob how powerful he was. What did Jacob do when things got rough? He what? He took off. He ran. So what did the Lord have to finally do to Jacob? He crippled him. So he couldn't run anymore. We don't want God to have to cripple us, okay? We don't want God to have to use severe means to force us to stay put long enough for him to teach us he's a powerful God, And he has our best interests at heart, even though the situation doesn't always indicate that. James is telling us that asking God for this kind of wisdom, the wisdom to do his will in a given situation so that we can better glorify him with our lives, listen, will never bring the reproach of God. In other words, it will never cause God to scold us. You're coming to me again asking for wisdom. You know, how many times I got to give you wisdom? James says, look, not only can you come as much as you want to ask God for wisdom because your heart wants to know his will so you can do his will, he will never say, get out of here, kid, I'm busy. Because God has commanded us to seek him in the paths of our lives. Turn to Proverbs 3. I mean, (laughs) the reason James says God will never reproach you if you come to him and ask for wisdom no matter how many times you do it, it's because this is the very thing he wants from us. We all know Proverbs 3, 5, and 6. Let me include verse 7, one that we don't tend to include with this. Let me read it to you out of the NLT. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Do not depend on your own understanding. Seek his will in all you do, and he will show you which path to take. Don't be impressed with your own wisdom. Instead, fear the Lord and turn away from evil. Look, God wants us to walk in the right paths, the paths that will allow him to to bless our lives most fully because it's a path that will teach us, refine us, and equip us to be used by him more, more completely. The devil, of course, has got these false paths, deceitful riches, all these things that are trying to get us off the right path. That's why we need to trust in the Lord with all our hearts and not you know, seek to, to run our lives as best we can, but in everything we do to acknowledge him, bring him into every decision, and let him direct our paths. And God delights in us asking for this kind of wisdom, and he will gladly give it to us generously. Verse 5 once again, If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally, generously, and without reproach, And it will be given to him, verse 6, But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. Look, God doesn't get upset when we ask for wisdom, that we might better know him, do his will. But what he does get upset with is when we ask for his wisdom in a given situation and then doubt whether or not he's going to really give it to us. Why would a Christian doubt God would give them the wisdom they ask him for? Well, there's many reasons. Many doubt because they reason they are unworthy of receiving anything from him. Why would God, I'm so unworthy. Well, that's true, okay? Let's just go on record and say, that's true. It's irrelevant, but it's true. We don't deserve anything from God except hell as unbelievers, right? 
Our salvation was a gift of God. And even now that we're saved and as children, we are not entitled to anything. We can't say, well, God, you owe me. No, absolutely not. And there are a lot of Christians who have allowed the devil, though, to beat them down and to, to make them feel so unworthy, so condemned all the time that they don't bother asking God because in their minds, why would God answer somebody like me? Because he loves you. And he wants you to do his will even more than you want to do it, which means he wants to give you the wisdom to know his will. Others believe he's just so busy running the universe that he really doesn't have time to get involved in their puny lives. Forgetting the scriptures that said every hair in your head is numbered by God and there's not a sparrow that falls to the ground but what he doesn't know about it and you are more valuable than many sparrows to him, Jesus said. So, you know, God is never too busy for us. That's such a, a fallacy, okay, that carnal, immature people cling to. Well, there's a third group that James is not really addressing here, but I'll throw it out to you. There are still others who don't even ask for wisdom at all. Why? Because they're too busy being angry at God for allowing the trial to come into their life in the first place. Again, these folks don't understand that trials are a blessing, not a curse. And I'll tell you, it's like, you know, what were you thinking? Well, you, you know, Jesus said, look, if you're going to come and follow me, first count the costs. There's costs involved, okay? I mean, you know, you, you want to make sure that you've thought about it. You understand that there is, you're giving up all rights to your life. Jesus is going to become your new master. He will, the one who will direct you. Uh, you give up all rights to, to live for his glory and his honor and so on. You know, there's a lot of folks that have never really been taught that. It's just come to Jesus, come to Jesus, you know, and the pastor and his zeal to want to see them saved doesn't really give them the cost involved in this decision they're about to make. I told you about the young lady that I uh, witnessed to uh, a few years ago when uh, Luis Paul came out to do a crusade in Chicago here, or Chicagoland area. I was one of the counselors that, uh, after he gave the invitation, uh, I would go down to the floor while he was giving it of the stadium, and then whoever came forward, we were to then uh, lead them in the sinner's prayer. Well, this one young lady came forward, and uh, there's a lot of people coming forward, but she came forward uh, to where I was. I think she was about maybe 20. And uh, I said, why are you here? Well, I want to receive Jesus as my Lord and Savior. And so, you know, instead of saying, oh, great, let's pray right now, I, I decided well, I'm going to probe her a little bit to see if she really understands what she's doing. So I said, okay, do you understand what you're really doing? I said, do you realize you're giving up all your rights to put yourself under Jesus' complete authority. He is your master. You become his slave. Your life is no longer belongs to you, but is now to be lived uh, to glorify him in all you do. I said, are you ready to make that kind of a commitment? And she stared at me for about five seconds, and then she said, no, I'm not ready to do that. And I said, God bless you for your honesty. I said, go home and you pray about it. Because it's not a decision you, you should enter into lightly. It's so important that people understand that to receive Christ and to be a Christian, there's, again, you're surrendering all to Jesus. But James is focusing on those people that ask God for wisdom and then doubt he's going to give it to them. And uh, he says of these people, they're like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind. This kind of person is kind of up and down, like a wave is up and down, up and down. These kind of people are up and down in their faith. One minute they're trusting God to help. I prayed, I'm trusting the Lord. And next minute they're all afraid God's not going to do anything, so they're grabbing it back, you know. Kind of the idea is, Lord, I've given you 20 minutes to, to help me know what to do here. I haven't heard from you. I'm taking this deal back. i gotta, I got to work it out myself. This is how they are. One minute they're trusting God, resting in, in God's promises. The other minute they're, they're just a ball of anxiety, uh, you know, and, and just freaking out because they can't believe God's going to really do it. i got to take care of it myself, you know. There's a lot of Christians who give the wheel to Jesus and then yank it back and drive into the ditch. Happens all the time. Happens all the time. And uh, James is trying to get us to understand that's not what we should be doing, how we should be living. That is the very definition of immaturity. 
In fact, Paul put it this way. He said in Ephesians 4, verse 14, he said that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro. So Paul was admonishing the Ephesians here in chapter 4 to grow up. Uh, the Christians there in Ephesus, it, it applies to, to all uh, Christians, that, look, our desire should be to grow up, okay? Uh, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro, carried about by every wind of doctrine. You see the James uses the word wind, waves in the wind, right? He's talking about Christians who are up and down in their faith, but also their immaturity is, causes them to be carried about by every wind of doctrine. I mean, I can tell a person who is very immature in their faith by what they buy into. I mean, look, again, you need to study God's Word because that's the foundation. It's true that by itself it won't make you wise, but it's certainly the foundation upon which God can build wisdom. You have to have a foundation. The Word of God is the foundation, right? But there's a lot of Christians who don't really read God's Word. They'll open it up and they'll read a little verse here or a passage over there. They're jumping all over. There's no consistency. When I do my devotions, I start in Genesis and move all the way through to Revelation. That's how I do it. And I always read a, one or two Psalms first, and then I, wherever I am, and I'm coming to the end of the New Testament again, and I'm going to turn around and go right back to Genesis. I want to see God's Word in its context, because I don't think you can really grow in your Christian life if you're cherry-picking one verse over here, one verse over there. You'll never get a consistency. It's like my pastor used to say, if you sign up for a class uh, in college or in high school, and it's a history class, and the first day the, the teacher says, okay, turn to page 345, we're going to learn about the Roman uh, Empire. Next week you come in, okay, turn to page uh, 183, we're going to learn about Egypt. I mean, if they're jumping all over the place, you don't get a flow for what history is really all about. History is an unfolding story, just like God's Word is an unfolding revelation. Start at the beginning and work your way through to the end. This way you'll get the whole counsel of God, and therefore God will be able to build on a good, solid understanding of what His Word is as you study it. But there are some who are tossed consistently by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men in the cunning craftiness of, de of deceitful plotting, where there's always wolves in the body of Christ. The sad thing about it is false teachers would not be around if there wasn't a market for them. The church today has itching ears, and it wants teachers that will tell them what they want to hear, not what God knows they need to hear. And so that's where you get the charlatans and the wolves and the people promising you all kinds of goodies and health and wealth and everything else because people want to hear that. They want to, for the most part, not you guys, but I'm saying, okay, the church is loaded with this. And so they're carried about constantly by every wind of doctrine. These uh, false teachers, they always got to come up with something new to keep their ministries in the forefront. I don't have to tell you guys some of the bizarre things that they've come up with. You know, everything from, you know, oh, well, we don't have time to list it all, but, you know, for holy laughter to, uh, well, you understand what I'm talking about, right? Back to James, let's finish up. Verse 7, For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. The person who is double-minded, for he is double-minded, he is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. The term double-minded literally means, listen, two-souled, S-O-U-L-E-D, S-O-U-L-E-D, two-souled. One writer put it this way. He said, and I quote, The man of two souls has one for the earth and another for heaven. He wishes to secure both worlds. He will not give up earth and he is loath to let heaven go as well, end quote. And that, folks, in and of itself, is not a wise way to live, trying to serve two masters. I mean, Christian maturity is all about being single-souled. <laughs> single-souled. It's all about making a full commitment to God and his will for your life, because God can't really bless anything less. And I think that's the essence of what James is saying. He's saying it's time to get off the fence. It's time to stop vacillating. It's time to stop being up and down in your faith and make a commitment. Kind of like what Joshua said so many centuries earlier. 
you know, choose today who, whom you're going to serve, the gods of this world or the Lord God Almighty. But as for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord. And I've called the book of James, uh, if you go on our website and you see they advertise the book of James on Wednesday nights, subtitle, A Call to Commitment. A Call to Commitment. Because James, and he talks tough, doesn't he? There are times when he really, okay, he talks tough. And a lot of people are offended by that. It's like, you know, if you go to a church and the pastor's talking to you like James talked to these folks, a lot of them wouldn't stay. Pastor's mean. Why is the pastor mean? He's yelling at me. He's telling me I can't, you know, sleep with my boyfriend or sleep with my girlfriend. or I have to be completely committed to Jesus. I don't want to be com completely committed to Jesus. I like Jesus, but, you know, well, you know what? James is saying, you know, it's time to get serious. It's time to get serious. And until you do, listen, and we'll close with this, you will only know instability and anxiety in your Christian life until you stop being double-minded in your walk with him and make a full-on commitment to Jesus Christ. That becomes the foundational idea for the rest of the book of James. A call to commitment. Time to get serious. So with God's grace, as we continue on, we will bring those things up that James is uh, going to uh, admonish us <laughs> to, uh, to walk in. And um, God used this book to purify our faith and uh, to bring us to a place of single-mindedness and total commitment to Jesus. Father, we thank you, Lord, for this epistle. And Lord, those of us who are serious about growing, we don't mind being slapped around a little bit by the Holy Spirit. We realize, Lord, that, you know what? It's only when you challenge us that we're going to grow. If we feel comfortable, we'll be complacent. If we're complacent, we're not growing. And so, Lord, we need to be uh, shaken a little bit. We need to be challenged if we're going to grow. And so, Lord, give us the grace to accept what you are saying to us through James and give us grace to apply these things into our lives that, uh, Lord, we might be full-on committed children to you. Father, we thank you. We ask all this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.